So, friends, I'll try to offer some teaching reflections on this theme. I'm not really quite sure what I'm going to say. First thought was, I've got nothing to say. (laughs) And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I started to give some sort of inner air to it. And then the second thought was, oh, I've got a lot to say. So I don't want to say nothing, and I don't want to say too much so that we have some chance to hear from you and to explore together. So, let's see. Um, I think the two things I'd like to speak about, on the one hand, like I referred to earlier, are, you know, the different nuances or implications or liberations, actually, we could say, the different liberating nuances of spaciousness. And then the other thing I'd like to speak about is the kind of, you know, the real-world application in the sort of, particularly the febrile or very charged areas of of our kind of uh, public life or public discourse or social issues, etc. And how a vast view combined with a fine, nuanced attention is... What vital, imperative, I think. And the two charged areas, I mean, there's a lot of charged areas we're to look at, look at. We could look at the various charged areas of our personal lives. And I teach a, a course sometimes called Work, Sex, Money, Dharma. And it's really all about looking at the char- those are the charged areas of our personal lives, right? And the areas where a lot of our energy goes, where a lot of our identity gets tied up with. But then if you also look at some of the charged areas of our wider kind of social lives, uh, one of those, the, the one that probably gets the most attention is the sort of the fracturing or polarizing of the social discourse, the political discourse, particularly. And the kind of, uh, it seems to be increasing hardening of that polarization. Right? And I don't need to go into the details of how politics are polarized for you to, to you know, orientate around that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of fine attention, right? and a lot of attention on details you know, what's right and what's wrong and who's saying it and how it's being said and, and uh, you know, agreeing or disagreeing and criticizing, etc. And we, uh, traditionally, we tend to align ourselves around the political discourse, uh, around one of those two poles, right? And they're traditionally called left and right. Those two poles, red and blue. Right? And it seems to me increasingly, actually, even though that's still the... Pre- predominant explicit paradigm seems to me actually that politics isn't really about left and right uh, anymore, that it's a kind of outmoded paradigm. I'm, I'm not, not sure how much to go into this territory because, you know, you might agree or disagree or vehemently disagree. I don't mind you vehemently disagreeing, but if you vehemently disagree, the only encouragement would be see if you can just Stay with me a little bit anyway, because that's part of the problem, right? Is that we, when we vehemently disagree, we lose each other. Right? 
So of course I don't want, it's not nice to vehemently disagree with anyone. And maybe you found yourself around the political stuff vehemently disagreeing with someone. And I bet it wasn't nice or isn't nice. Maybe you have people in your families with who you vehemently disagree about politics or anything else. Right? And it's, it's, not, it's not nice. But in a way, that's a challenge. It's like how do we stay in some kind of relationship when we vehemently disagree? Because that's what we see playing out in politics, is, no co- is the kind of erosion of our capacity to stay in a relationship, to stay in discourse, to see each other's you know, humanity. We might disagree around the discourse, but we've actually sh- got this shared thing called humanity together. Except when we vehemently disagree, we tend to withdraw the humanity from the other one. We look at the other as if they don't have humanity or they don't have decency or they don't have whatever it is we accuse them of. We find some way to make them wrong, bad, other. And we see that across the political divide, left and right, making each other wrong, bad, stupid, ignorant, uh, etc. And we see that within each camp, the groups that get demonized, Right. right tends to easily find external groups to do the demonizing. And the left seems to you know, make a speciality of finding within its own ranks uh, all kinds of ways of infighting, and, and you know, sometimes called virtue signaling and all, all kinds of other things. You, couldn't, you didn't hear what I said? Sometimes called virtue signaling? Is that the bit? That, yeah. So they tend to be the most, you know, the most right in some way, not right, right, but right, right, <laughs> being right. And yet, the more, whether one looks on the right or the left of the political spectrum, we see in that polarizing a kind of increasing tendency, and it looks to me like that increasing tendency is on both sides, of a kind of withdrawal into rigid rhetoric. Right? I think it seems to me that actually what's happening in that wider political discourse, more than just a kind of who do we agree with across the right or left, is uh, this sort of withdrawal on the one hand into rigid rhetoric, which one finds on both sides of the spectrum, or on the other hand, the possibility, and I think it's being worryingly eroded, the possibility for a kind of nuanced reflection. And nuanced reflection offers us a chance to see the other, whether we agree or disagree. If we look at that in our paradigm, fine attention, vast view, right? If, all, if it all goes to the fine attention on what's being said and, what, and who's saying it and all the rest of it, we can only be polarized. So what, what is it like if we zoom out from whether I agree or disagree with what you're saying, etc., or what you're doing, or whether you're on the left and I'm on the right, or vice versa, or whatever? What is the vast view, the spacious view? Mm, I could look at that in different ways, but one aspect of that vast view is that everybody is right. Notice the response you have inwardly, right? How could, rather than whether that's true or not, or rather than finding all kinds of evidence for why that one particularly isn't right, whoever your your that one might be, right? We just what if we just give a little air to the possibility that everybody's right? 
Everybody's, how can we recover enough space, not just to agree or disagree, but to actually really, really see if it's possible? There's enough spaciousness from our own uh, preferences and views and uh, concerns and resentments and agreements, etc. There's enough space to really see if it's possible that everybody's right. And particularly if you take one, somebody with whom you agree, and it can be across the political life, or it can be in your personal life, or your family life, or you know, it can be these large-scale um, political disagreements, or it can be just the, you know, the disagreement with one's lover, or brother, or whoever. If we, re- if we zoom out enough to just leave aside a little bit the content for a moment, right? the content's still important, fine attention on what's going on in the content, but also that wide view... And we say, oh, the other, in whatever way, right, working with their own obscurations and their own fears and their own impulses and their own needs, right, just like we, each of us, are working with our own obscurations and fears and impulses, and, right, the other ones somehow come to the, the, the place where they want this, they believe that, they're trying to do X or Y, etc. And at least at least in their own inner world, they're right. Otherwise, they wouldn't be defending their position, bringing forth their rhetoric. It takes a certain spacious view, not just to kind of try to persuade oneself that the other's right, but to actually see that that one there, who I disagree with so strongly, maybe, and maybe I'm really, maybe I can really see that my view is actually a wiser view, a more compassionate view, a clearer view, a kinder view, all the rest of it. Very good. But still, can I see that the other one's also right? They're right in their frame of reference. They're right from, you know, from their conditioning. They're right as far as they've managed to kind of construct their own worldview. Because if I can see that somewhere, somehow, you're also right, then I can stay in relationship. And then I can kind of extend a, a quality of listening, not just to what you say, to the details, but listening to who you are. Listening to what you might need. Right? And maybe you know from when you actually really feel listened to, all kinds of new possibility emerges. When I'm arguing with you, whoever you are, right? again, large scale or small scale or just with the partner or whatever, when we're both trying to win, when we're both defending and, and trying to be right, there's just no room for movement. And then, oh, when we realize that's what we're doing, we stop trying to be right and we're actually interested in the other, possibility emerges. It seems to me that, you know, that's a contribution we can each make, you know, in in whatever our sphere of public engagement as well as our personal engagement with the other people in our lives to to see where we get fixated on on the detail, right? Plenty of fine attention to what you said and why you said it and what you mean and what you did last week and what you've been doing for the last 25 years that we've been living together. And And to actually have that kind of, you know, the wider view that's able to see 
the other more fully and the other the wider view that's also able to recognize whatever my own reactivity my own need to be right my own intolerance my own uh, yeah, rigidity it's so much easier to see somebody else's rigidity right it's so easy to get righteous about how wrong the other is and if there's conflict. If you're being righteous, if you're angry with the other, if you're making the other wrong and bad, you, you, there's no way to do that other than you having a piece of that yourself. And again, objectively, you might have the clearer view, you know, wiser view, more compassionate view. But, oh, that's what the space gives us, is that the space to... And then we can really... And then we're actually really able to make sense of the dynamics that go on in relationship and in conflict and in polarization and in difference and in disagreement. Because there's a lot more going on in disagreement than just somebody being right and somebody being wrong. It seems like we, re we need to find that nuance, that ground. Because without it, you know, the movement, certainly the last while, has been to an increasing and increasing and increasing degree of polarization, difference, oppositionness. So as I say, that's the stuff that tends to get most m newspaper column inches, right? Takes up most of the space in the public discourse. But meanwhile, the other charged area of uh, concern, which ought to be getting even more attention, is the you know, total climate emergency and how we attend to that. And that can be very frightening, actually, if we go to the... if we give fine attention to the details. If you really look at the data and you really look at the prognostics and you really see how all the models, terrifying as they are, are every single week being broken by the fact that everything's happening much faster than it was thought. So that IPCC report that came out two or three months ago saying we've got 12 years before the tipping point, the broad consensus of all climate scientists is that that's way too conservative. We, that we haven't got 12 years. The, the, the very broad consensus is that we're basically pr almost certainly past a tipping point for being able to control the way the climate is. And that a kind of catastrophic climate event, right, a degree of warming that makes you know, massive crop failure happen. And you know, crop failure means lack of food. Lack of food means you know, pretty much breakdown in our capacity to organize ourselves socially. Right? A kind of a, a, a socially catastrophic climate event, the, the, the likelihood of a socially catastrophic climate event is really, really high, really, really soon. And, you know, so then what happens when we really give an honest attention? Because the tendency around that stuff, and we see this socially, the tendency isn't to give a very honest attention, which understandably, because it's, it's terrifying in some ways. So the tendency is, Right. We go to a vast view, all right, but it's a kind of disconnected vast view. We basically we push it out of consciousness. And partly that's understandable evolutionarily. Is that a word, even evolutionarily? Yeah. 
We're not very good, we're not wired to, to relate very well to abstract sense of threat. It's not actually abstract, but it seems abstract, right? Because, oh look, sun's shining, and there's food in the shops, and it's a bit warmer or a bit colder than usual, and, da -da 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 -da, and we carry on. And it's sort of inconceivable, just like it's inconceivable of us to, of us to really contemplate our own death. Right? We push our own mortality out of consciousness. And Dharma practice actually invites us to really reflect on our mortality. But it takes real nuance to reflect on your mortality, right? Because our death is somehow inconceivable to us. Because all we're used to is like, oh, life. And similarly, on a kind of larger scale, we don't know really how to, or it doesn't come easily, it certainly doesn't come naturally to us to contemplate our own you know, extinction individually or, or uh, collectively. So we have to come. If we want to do something, we have to come to the, the fine attention. And some of you have read, I posted an article by... Um, um, oh, what's her name? Catherine Ingram. Ingram, thank you. Uh, yesterday or the day before on Facebook. It's a very long article, but it's the best article I've read for a long time about uh, climate emergency. Helps that the two people she quotes are the Buddha and Leonard Cohen. So <laughs> already in my good books were those two. But um, I'd really, really recommend that article, it's long and it's in-depth and it goes way beyond just speaking about the kind of facts and figures and prognostics to really look at the inner relationship with that. So on the one hand, we need to come to the fine detail. We need to actually wake up and be as honest you know, as individually and collectively about what's happening. That, but, and we also need a vast view because if you only got the fine detail, you know, it's, it can only be you know, depressing slash terrifying. Right? So what, what's the vast view? The wide open view? A view that, takes, that looks further than what's often cited, you know, our children's lives. That's the line that gets, you know, what kind of world for our children and their children. And of course, on a human level, come to the fine view, we might well be more than concerned. Right? For the for the you know, big disruptive uh, catastrophic kinds of changes in the life that we've become familiar with and grown accustomed to and take for granted, that are, that are seemingly or you know are certainly almost inevitable in the next decade or two or three. So of course we're concerned, that, and yet then if we come to that vast view. It's a little like the sign on the tree in the monastery in Thailand. In a hundred years, all new people. But a little bit vaster than that. In 10,000 years, what? In a million years, what? In a billion years, what? 200,000 years ago, there were no humans. Humans live more or less, you know, steadily, not doing much to the climate or to other species in any great numbers for quite a few tens of thousands of years. And then the last couple of hundred years, we've really fucked about with things. And it is the fate of us all, collectively, humanity and every other species, to die. I mean, not just to die individually, but to die collectively. 
Again, we don't contemplate that degree of demise, but nothing lasts. If you zoom out to a geological or cosmological timescale, the whole this whole planet is just going to go cold and 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 fizzle out. I can't remember if it's the Earth that will collapse first or the Sun that'll go first. But it's only a billion years or so, or a couple of billion, maybe three billion. How many billion years till the Sun goes out? Anybody know? Oh, seven billion. Okay. Uh huh. So of course it's hard for us, and it can seem like some sort of kind of convoluted intellectual exercise, and that's not what I mean it as. It's actually to recognize that we're, we're here. And I don't mean we, you and I, even the living generation. I mean all of our ancestors and all of our progeny, all human generations, all generations of earth creatures. We're here unbelievably briefly. We're a, you know, the tiniest flicker in, in, in cosmological time and we can you know we can take our we can take that in in terms of some ideation but we're actually asked to to recognize it in a broader way deeper way a vast view and the, the consequences of that vast view may be actually to relax us we're not here to survive it's built in our destruction and destruction of everything is completely built in we're fucked from the beginning, right? right. And our, you know, our own lives are like that. We're bound for death. Bound for death. And we can kind of shy away from that fact. But if we really sit, oh, it's bound for death. Therefore, basically, nothing can go too wrong. Right? Nothing can go too wrong. That, that's what's going to happen. That, that's the ground, right? I'm here for I don't know how long, and it's... I'm definitely going to die at the end of it. And the end may be much sooner than I think. And then, okay, what seems like a skillful way to engage with that? Zen reflection, death is most certain. The time of death is most uncertain. What should I do? And collectively, right? Life on planet Earth is fragile how long we can manage and sustain the life on earth is unknown. What should we do? Both individually and collectively, of course, the what should we do brings us to the fine detail. The fine attention. Well, what we should do is the only response in the face of living a life that's already bound for destruction, the only response that makes any sense is to care for what's here, to be respectful to what's here, to make the best use, good use, kind use, caring use, wise use of what's here. While simultaneously having that wider view of knowing it, 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 it can't go on indefinitely. It seems to me that that nuance is also needed. When we look at the climate, the tendency for denial is extraordinary. I don't just mean in terms of kind of sceptical climate deniers. I mean our own inner denial of just, you know, the way we 
you know, collectively carry on living as if we're not, you know, over-consuming resources and over-polluting, etc., etc. And otherwise, we either just, just disconnect from that or we get so bound up in the detail that we, we sort of collapse under the weight of it. And so that nuance of being able to be kind of honest and sort of stare into the abyss, right? We don't know. We don't know exactly. I mean, that's part of the failing of the climate models is that we don't know how climate disruption is going to happen. That's the nature of disruption, right? It's disruptive. It's unpredictable, right? We don't know much about how. We don't know much about when. But we've passed the point of if. That's for sure. So being awake to the detail and expansive enough in that vast view that the fear goes out of it. Because what's the worst that can happen? It's important to consider, actually, the worst that can happen. We don't want to look at the worst that can happen, but that's where you come to the end of fear, where you can take in the worst that can happen. Somebody on a pilgrimage in Bhutan got sick. And they said to me, oh, sick. And I said to them, well, it'll pass, or you'll pass. You know? They didn't really appreciate. Like, <laughs> but the invitation was, you know, take in the worst that can happen. And if you can resolve yourself to the worst that can happen, then nothing can go wrong. And then, actually, much more able to look courageously, fearlessly, lovingly into what can I do? What needs to be done? What can we do? So, in some ways, you know, people come to Dharma teachings or something, I've, in some ways I don't want to get too much into the kind of the outer stuff of uh, the wider life. But increasingly I also feel like, you know, how can, you, how can we also engage these teachings and these practices without having it have some direct, explicit bearing on the wider life. Because, you know, we are living an inner life and we're living this wider life. So, I wanted to kind of just give some air to those topics because they're so alive and to somehow find a way to speak about them in the light of this fine attention and wide view. And then filling out that sense of wide view or spacious view, just to, to look at some of the implications, what did I say earlier, the liberating implications of, of taking rest in a spacious, abiding, in a vast view, in a kind of, in that sky-like nature of awareness that we were speaking about in the meditation that actually can that has room for whatever appears has room for the the fear and the reactivity and the disagreements that we were just I was just talking about a moment ago without them taking up all the space and there's different ways we could speak about those qualities of spaciousness 
And I thought one way of doing it is just, just looking at them in terms of the three energetic centers, like how spaciousness appears from those different angles. So the sort of belly center, right? an embodied relationship with spaciousness, heart center, uh, love's relationship with spaciousness, and the head center, a kind of clear relationship or wisdom relationship with spaciousness. One thing, the kind of embodiment. We just what I mean by the body embodied relationship or the belly's relationship with spaciousness is that sense of just really being able to sit in a wide view, to sense into the inherent spaciousness, to feel body sitting, and to feel the fact that there's space around it, that then sensations are happening within awareness. And one of the nuances of that embodied spaciousness, well, one of them is anicca, right? It's just the, the changing nature of sensation. And we hear about that so much in Dharma teaching, oh, everything's changing, everything's changing, right? But to actually, you know, for me, that's been one of the most powerful elements of, and transformative elements of practice is actually really attending to the constant fleeting, fluid, flickering nature of sensory life. Not just attending to it, thinking about it, agreeing, but like letting your cells learn their flickering nature. Letting yourself sit in the space in which it's all happening by itself. So the, that's one of the nuances, the change, and then that, the other nuance is that happening by itself bit. We spoke about it as trustworthiness early, right? Letting yourself realize, feel and know that you can trust yourself to relax. That you can trust yourself to be here. That the fundamental spacious nature of consciousness can hold your experience, allow your experience, Receive your experience, process your experience. And that, that, you know, that's a way one can orientate you know, one's formal practice, you know, daily sense, just oh, actually settling, settling, settling into a basic, spacious abiding, you know. It's very available, like we were saying a little bit earlier, in the outbreath. Letting each outbreath sort of collapse into, melt into, drop into, relax into presence. And that very kind of bodyful relationship to space in informal practice, you know, throughout the day, like I was encouraging you at lunchtime, to, to feel the spaciousness in which body is moving and which experience is happening. And the heart's relationship to spaciousness, well, much of that is sort of the territory of the Brahma-viharas, right? the, the boundless states of heart. It's interesting that they, you know, that name they're given, these particular kind of qualities of love that are spoken about in the tradition, spoken about as inherently limitlessly spacious qualities, boundless qualities. 
Right? And the four that you're probably most of you familiar with, right? The four Brahma Viharas, they're all characterized by a kind of a wide open heart, a spacious heart. Right? The heart is incapable of love when it's tight, when there's no space. So those qualities, metta, basic kind of care, friendliness, kind of warmth towards what's happening, depends on having the space to care, the space to actually to notice, to feel, to care. And the way in which those, those particularly those four qualities, are, you know, have no limit. There's no limit to the heart's capacity to care. And sometimes we feel like it's caring for something particular. It's caring, you know, caring for this situation or this person or this experience. Or we might equally, when we attend, not just to the experience that we're caring for, but to the quality of care, that warmth of heart, we might find, oh, that it's, it's an inherent quality of the fundamental spaciousness of consciousness. Consciousness cares for what shows up. It's not even that we, we say, oh, I care, I'm doing meta practice. I'm going to try to care for things, care for people. And, you know, it can be beautiful and powerful to practice in that way. But we also find our way there, not through trying to care or cultivating care, but just recognizing that that is the nature. The heart's relationship to an openness to experience is to love what arises to care for what arises, to embrace what arises. Same for the other heart qualities, right? Compassion. That space to actually respond to that which is painful. There's no room for compassion. There's no room for, for responding, reaching out, making a difference, doing what one can to take care of pain when, when there's no space. There's no space when we get overwhelmed by pain or we shut down to pain. Right? Those are the two habit responses. I can't, I can't deal with it, so I disconnect. Or I sort of drown in it and get overwhelmed. But when we can feel the space around that which is painful, when we can dare to give a fine attention to the pain, the ache, the hurt, the distress, the sadness, the loss, the grief. Uh, and we can let ourselves feel that. What does that mean? To let yourself feel pain is to know the space in which the pain is felt. That's the space that can actually keep the heart open in the face of you know, all that's painful or distressing. And similarly with joy. Right. The heart capacity, limitless, boundless capacity to enjoy. It doesn't get spoken enough about in Dharma halls. Right? Not enough enjoyment. Right? Oh, enjoy, enjoy. But you need this space to enjoy. We know how to just take pleasure in something. We know how to gratify ourselves. We know how, how to sort of consume pleasure. That's what happens. If there's no space, it's just like, oh. You see sometimes that relationship with, with something pleasurable, whatever it is, it might be food or it might be sex or it might be 
you know, some experience I want or something I want to get hold of. And we try to kind of, the idea, it somehow feels like if I can get that source of pleasure and, and consume it, I'll somehow bring the pleasure or the gratification or the happiness inside. And then you do or you don't, you get it or you don't get it, enjoy it briefly, and then I'll, now I need something else, now I'm going to get something else and try and bring that inside. Right? This kind of hungry ghost relationship to pleasure. But if there's space in the heart, it's like, oh, when a source of pleasure arises, when a source of joy arises, something's seen or tasted or heard that's beautiful, the capacity to actually let the heart flourish with it, enjoy it, celebrate it, delight in it. Incredibly nourishing. It's sort of tragic when we see how much pleasure is on offer to us in life and how bad most people are at enjoying. Actually, to give the fine attention to the heart, the relationship with pleasure. Oh, and then with that vast view, that spaciousness of heart that can kind of rejoice, to rejoice in the beautiful, rejoice in the sweet, rejoice in that which there is to be grateful for, to wonder at, to delight in, in beauty, art, intimacy, you know, the, the endless sources of joy. The tight heart gratifies itself, and the spacious heart takes delight, nourishes itself. And then that quality of uh, what's sometimes translated as equanimity, upekka, the fourth boundless quality of heart, which is really all about space. That's why I don't like the word equanimity, because it sounds like a sort of flat line sometimes, like, oh, I'm just being equanimous, nothing much happening. But actually... Upeka is that just that bound, that gr- spaciousness of heart that has room. So that, you know, the changing nature of things, pleasant, unpleasant, challenging, beautiful, etc., etc., can be made room for without leading to all kinds of up and down drama. Experience goes up and down, but that we don't have to go up and down in some kind of emotional roller coaster with it. Exquisite, you know, to know that not as this sort of equanimous mind, but actually as a really spacious heart. The the love that's able to allow what's happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, allow what's here, whether I like it or not, allow what's here because it's what's here. So that kind of spacious view has all these nuances of loving spaciousness. To be able to care, respond, delight, make room for experience. And that's also a a nuance of space that we can give attention to, either in our formal practice or informal practice. The heart's relationship to what's happening. What's the heart's relationship to sitting here quietly, breathing? What's the heart's relationship to walking down the street in Manhattan and the plethora of humanity and what's going on? What's the heart's relationship to when I see something beautiful? 
It's a heart's relationship when I'm confronted with something painful. And having that kind of, that constant, uh, spacious um, referencing of the heart. Having the space to feel for the heart's relationship. And then, you know, viewed from the sort of the, the head center, center that you might associate with qualities of clarity, luminosity. Another way we could speak about the, the relationship to spaciousness in the head center is in terms of emptiness. Again, I don't really like the term emptiness, sunyata. I think we need more... Um, we need more terms to fill out the nuance of that term. I think sometimes transparency is a better word. Right? And spaciousness that's able to recognize experience as kind of ephemeral, transparent. It's able to see through what's happening rather than getting fixated on the object. If we've only got fine attention, right, fixate on it. And you have that vast view, clear light view. Mm. wisdom view, transparent view. You see that you know, consciousness is, is um, unoccluded by whatever shows up in it. Does that make sense when I say that? Consciousness is unoccluded by what shows up in it. You're sitting in a spacious abiding in meditation, for example, and some, oh, let's take the example, music arises. Right? If we've only got the fine attention on music, and then I either like the music, or I don't like the music, or I get lost in the music, or I fight against the music, it's not transparent, right? It's, it's, take, it's, got all kind of, it's taken on a sort of solidity. And then I've got to deal with it in some way. Mm, spacious view, right? spacious abiding, spacious awareness, spacious being here. And then in the midst of this vitamin space, da-da-da-da-da-da bit of reggae, what do you call it? What was it? Dance hall. Do, 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 do. Right. It's transparent. Right. Consciousness doesn't get blocked up because something appears in it. Neither sounds, neither sights, neither imaginations, neither memories. Spacious view, clear light view. Kind of sees in such a way there's Nothing, nothing can occlude, that's what I mean by occlude, nothing can occlude consciousness. Nothing really can make consciousness opaque. Nothing can block up consciousness fundamentally. Everything's transparent. Empty in, in normal Buddhist language. And capacity to, to look at experience, fine attention, with a spacious view, so that we're not just looking at it, we're actually able to see right through it and see the way it's, it's, uh, it's, it presents itself without impinging, without corrupting, without really getting in the way at all of the fundamentally spacious nature of awareness. And when we, the more we recognize that 
fundamental spaciousness, the more we give ourselves to that fundamental spaciousness, the more specifically actually, the more that we let ourselves really rest in that fundamental spaciousness, the more the various comings and goings show their transparency and the more they settle down. The more we're, we're grounded in that basic spacious abiding, relaxed abiding, we called it earlier, the less compelled we are by all the stuff that shows up. So all kinds of thoughts come and they you know, have their little cinema, they do their little puppet show, they you know, make themselves very self-important, say, look at me, pay attention to me, believe in me, follow me, and that's it. Just because they say, I'm real, you've got to follow me. Well, no, I don't. And so then rather than having our experience be dictated by all that interactivity, dictated by our thoughts and dictated by our beliefs and dictated by our reactions, our experience is much more shaped by resting in the space in which they're coming and going. And then we have all kinds of ways of meeting experience and meeting reality that are independent from thought, independent from concept. And I don't want to talk about that stuff too much, partly because if you don't have any access to that, all you can do is make a conceptual version of it, so that doesn't help. And if you do have access to that stuff, just trust the access. So that we can do in our, in, 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 you know, we can orientate in that way in our practice. Orientating into just letting, not fussing with your inner life. Not fussing with the thought productions. Not fussing with the beliefs and the reactivity. Right? They need attention in different kinds of ways. But in terms of just this this aspect, this nuance of transparent spaciousness. One of the most powerful things we can do with our practice is just really leave it all alone. Leave yourself alone. Leave your mind alone. Leave your reactivity alone. Leave your, your, your past alone. Leave your dramas alone. Leave all the productions alone. Right? What does that mean, leave them alone? It doesn't mean, oh, Leave them alone, push them away over there. It means leave them be, let them arise. Hashtag no wrong experience, right? Like we said, right? No thought that can't be allowed to pass through. Transparent mind, luminous mind. Transparent mind, room for all of this. Spacious heart, able to love all of this. Embodied spaciousness, present in the middle of all of this. So that's the promise and the real possibility and the alive invitation of our practice. Please make good use of it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.